that if you are an individual who has uh, experienced, are experiencing, or potentially may experience depression in the future, please know that you are not alone. Uh, there were people in Scripture who struggled greatly with uh, episodes of this problem. And with that said, we talked last week about Mephibosheth. And this week we're talking about someone much, much, much more famous. If you will, open your Bibles with me to Numbers chapter 11. And we are going to go into the Word of the Lord. Bishop Carrico, it is good to have you in the house of the Lord today. Thank you for attending. Our district DYDs, Terry and Jessica Hatcher, it is always a pleasure to have you in the house of the Lord with us. And of course you, if you happen to be a visitor this morning. We are so grateful that you are attending with us today. We realize that you could be just about anywhere on planet Earth. And you have elected to perch yourself here at Calvary Worship Center this morning. So thank you for that. Numbers chapter 11, we're going to begin in the 10th verse and read through verse 15 again. As always, I'm reading from the New International Version of the Bible. If yours differs slightly and you might get off base a little bit, what I'm reading is going to be on the screen behind me. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep on wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. This morning, I'd like to speak to you concerning Moses. Now, I know what you might be thinking, what some of you are quite possibly thinking. You might be thinking, really? Moses? Really? Come on, Bedard, you've got to be kidding me. You're in a series about depression. And I understand that you might bring in someone like Mephibosheth into this series. He isn't anybody's spiritual hero. And quite frankly, I would imagine that since before last week, some people here had not even so much as heard of Mephibosheth. I could even understand if you decided to bring in the occasional minor prophet that suffered maybe with depression. After all, with everything that they had to endure to go through and fulfill the job that God had tasked them with, I could understand the occasional minor prophet possessing or having depression within them. Besides, with respect to them, no one is banking their spiritual success on someone named Habakkuk. But Moses, 
Do you realize, Michael, that Jack Graham pastors a megachurch in Dallas? Jack Graham himself referred to Moses as perhaps the greatest leader of all antiquity. Moses, depressed? I don't think so. You are clearly messing with the wrong biblical hero here, buddy. You have officially barked up the wrong tree. And with all of that said, you know, my reply would simply be this. I get that. I get that. We don't like it when our heroes have flaws. We don't like it. It kind of gets awkward and uncomfortable when the people that we look up to have weaknesses. But if I can be completely honest, if I can just be transparent with you for just a moment, I would like to tell you that when you're a person who suffers with clinical depression, it's a very comforting thing to know that some of the most respected people in all of God's Word suffered with similar afflictions and yet prevailed. That's a comfort when you are struggling sometimes with every single footstep that you make to know that there are people that whether right, wrong, or indifferent, we have made them larger than life. And yet those individuals have suffered much like the way I do. And yet, when finally standing before their God, He leans over on His throne, puts an elbow on His knee, and motions them to come forward. And in utter humility, as they approach the throne of God, He looks at them with a smile and says, Well done. That's comforting. That's a comfort. Now, so that we can have some sense of context, some sense of how this is all working and so on and so forth, let me talk for just a moment about clinical depression. For the record, clinical depression is a mental health disorder that is characterized by persistently depressed mood and or a loss of interest in activities that one would normally eagerly participate in, causing significant impairment in a person's daily life. Potential causes for clinical depression include things like a combination of biological, psychological, and social sources of distress. Research increasingly suggests that these factors may cause changes in brain function, including, get a load of this, altered activity of certain neural circuits in the brain. Now, if that kind of, like it did me when I first read that, kind of flew right past you and you're going, huh? Let me put this in other words. These stressors can actually cause a kind of spontaneous rewiring of the brain over time as a result of the trauma that those uh, stressors exerted both mentally and emotionally. 
So in other words, because of what has occurred or is occurring, your brain becomes altered in its function. Not a very good coping mechanism. Depression can be either short or long-term. Short-term, also known as situational depression, often improves after enough time has elapsed after the st- whatever st- stressful event brought the depression on. As a result, a person may notice that their mood improves and things start to look up. Clinical depression, on the other hand, may get in the way of a person's life and their living for a very, very long time. Now, back to our text. Our text says that in verse 10, that should be behind me, in verse 10, the Bible says that Moses was troubled. I think the King James there, if you're carrying a King James version of the Bible, says displeased, if I'm not mistaken. But in the NIV, it's troubled. This word, troubled, and preachers and Bible students do this a lot. We go back to the original source so that we can understand deeper meaning from original words and original languages as opposed to just accepting the English on face value. And so in the Hebrew here, troubled is made up of actually two different words that are conveying, get a load of this, two totally different ideas, or separate, if not different, separate ideas. But when you combine those two ideas together, we get the word troubled. And that word paints a very, very vivid picture. The first word is the Hebrew word ra'ah. And it can only be described, that word can only be described as dark. This word is defined using terms like this. Evil. Hurt. Wicked. Break. And harm among others, in order to get us to understand the definition of the meaning of this word. The second word is ayin. Simply refers to the eye. Your eye. That's all it refers to. But the thing about this word is that it doesn't mean the eye as you and I typically think, as taking stuff in visually. Not as one thinks of the eye as viewing something and perceiving it. No. On the, care, on the contrary, ayin describes the eye as a fountain that is pouring something out of it. Now, with that said, when Numbers 11 and 10 says that Moses was troubled, What it's saying there, what it means is that the expression on Moses' face, as well as the look in his eyes, was one of having had all that he could take. He was up to here. Popeye the sailor. Popeye the sailor said it this way. If we could apply Popeye the sailor to Moses, Moses was saying, it's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. Moses' eyes were pouring out a combination of evil, hurtful, harmful thoughts about the Israelites in light of their constant and their incessant complaining. In essence, This was a case of, if looks could kill. In the modern tongue, Moses was giving Israel an industrial strength dose of stink eye. Moses was troubled. 
two at this point in history, which was very, very, very early in the exodus from Egypt. Moses was additionally very unhappy with the task that had been given him to accomplish by God. Look at how he speaks to the Lord concerning having to lead Israel. We've already read it, but we're going to read it again. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought me, brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing at me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people myself. The burden is too heavy for me. I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of like Moses is unhappy with his current occupation. He sounds a little bit miffed with the divine for seemingly giving him a task far greater than his capacity to handle. Have you ever felt in your life like God has put upon you something that you simply don't have the wherewithal to process? You ever been there? Yeah. Interestingly, though, when Moses asked the Lord in verse 11, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? That word trouble is the exact same Hebrew word as the word used to describe Moses' mood over Israel's constant complaining. He was troubled in verse 10 because in verse 11 he's blaming God for causing the trouble. Now, I don't know about you, I realize that we like to read the Bible and romanticize those stories and those characters contained in there. Let me say something to you. There's nothing romantic here at all. Moses is a very unhappy individual, and he and God are having a come-to-Jesus moment. This isn't a pleasant experience in the least. Moses has had it up to here. And he's letting God know, I've had it up to here. And if you ask me, God, you're the one who has brought me to this place. Essentially, because this word is the same word. Essentially, Moses was asking God, why are you being so evil to me? Why are you trying to hurt me? Why are you being so wicked with me? Why are you trying to break and harm me? Essentially, Moses asked the Lord, Why are you giving me, your servant, the divine stink eye? Now, I can just see God. You see, remember, our text opens up in verse 10 with God being exceedingly angry. Right? And now Moses... Loaded for bear, in this case, loaded for God, shows up in front of God 
reads him the riot act. And God is this. Sitting on His throne, listening to Moses rant and rave. God already in a less than stellar mood. And God is sitting there on the throne. Four creatures are circling his throne, as we know about in Isaiah and the Revelation. And they normally are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Not this time. They're going, holy cow. I imagine on either side of the throne, these giant spear-wielding angels, and they're standing there kind of doing this. just waiting for this temper tantrum to subside. And as heaven listens to Moses' rant, they wait patiently because the long-suffering, merciful God waits for Moses to get done. Now I want you to understand this was not some casual conversation between Moses and God where Moses is merely airing some mild grievance with the boss. No. Moses at this juncture is borderline episodic. Listen to what Moses says in verse 15. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found, and this is the funny line right here. If I've found favor in your sight, it's almost sarcasm. And do not let me face my own ruin. Now we're down to business. Right there, those last words, that's actually what Moses' point is. He is looking at the multitudes of Israel, complaining, griping, He can't supply everything that they need. He has a job to do. He's trying to measure up. He looks at it. Finally, the wailing is perpetual. Every family, the text says, is in the door of their tents wailing about something. And Moses has had it up to here, and he cannot complete this task. And he goes off on God and says, if this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead. Please go ahead and kill me. You could probably theologically insert the word now right after the word me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and just kill me now. If I've found favor, because, Lord, I can't face my own ruin. This is going to be the end of me. This is going to be it. I can't do this. There's the reality right there. That's actually the problem. Moses perceives himself failing. And he can't, and he knows that this this is going to drive him to the grave. So God, since that's the case, just kill me now, because I don't want to go that route. Please understand that this is not suicide that we're talking about here. It's not a case of, I can't go on like this, so I'm going to take my life and end it. No, By definition, suicide is the act of intentionally causing one's own death. 
That's not what Moses was attempting. That's not what Moses was saying. And that is not what I said either. Allow me to explain. For years I have said that I do not understand the concept of hopelessness. It evades me. I, I don't get hopelessness. I have never been without hope. Never. For years, I simply could not wrap my head around the idea of someone arriving at a place in life where, to their mind, they had no other option but to extinguish their life in order to escape what it was that they were facing. And I'm going to be honest with you, church. I still do not fully understand hopelessness. I have Jesus. And if you take every single nuance of every single thing away from me, I am not hopeless because I have Jesus. But I've got to be completely honest with you. Although I do not fully understand hopelessness, I have had times in my life where I have come dangerously close. You see, when a person who is being crushed by depression genuinely asks God to take his or her life that request is based on the understanding of two things. One, the one is obvious. That person simply cannot continue to go on like they are. It is simply too much for them. That's the, that's the obvious one. The other one, the second one, that there's an understanding that the request that they're making is based on the knowledge and the assurance that if God will just consent, if He'll just agree to take you home, if He'll just do that thing, then everything that you've been experiencing Everything that has brought you to the place that you are will be over. It'll all be over. And instead of the crushing depression, that will be replaced by rest. Remember what Moses said in our text if I have found favor in your eyes. I have prayed that prayer that Moses prayed, minus the sarcasm. I have prayed that prayer on more than one occasion. But it wasn't out of anger and it wasn't out of frustration over complaining people. In my case, it was that if he would just agree to take me home, then I wouldn't have to continue living with this crushing, overwhelming, overshadowing sense of inadequacy and the perpetual undercurrent of not measuring up and not belonging. Moses prayed, do not let, my fa let me face my own ruin. That's what he prayed. People suffering with depression understand what Moses meant when he said that to God. They understand. You see, 
I was raised, I'm just going to give you some backstory in case some of that stuff just doesn't make sense to you about me, since I, I need to give you this story. I was raised by my, a dad who himself was terribly damaged by how he was raised. If I shared some stories with you, you could quite possibly be aghast in disbelief. But as a result of that terrible damage, the only way that my dad could relate to my older brother and I was that we were stupid. We were lazy. And that anything, anything that we did, someone else could do better. Because of that message deposited into me at a very, very early age and perpetually repeated throughout my young adult years, that message became my identity. That message was hardwired into me. That message was how from then on I viewed myself. As a result, in my heart, in my mind, in my spirit, I was a dead dog living in the land of nothing. All the while, still wearing the face, still putting on the facade of what was expected of me in front of people. Now, anybody here watch TV? I mean actual TV, not TV off of this. Actual broadcast television. Well, if you're a TV watcher, all three of you, you've likely seen a commercial advertising an anti-depression drug called Rick Salty. And Rex Salty kind of has a famous managing or a marketing campaign because it's the one where people walk around their life and their living. Very common scenarios with a cutout circle that's on a stick. And on the circle is this handwritten smiley face. And as they're walking around life and living, they have that face up in front of their face. But all the while, behind the mask, their facial expression shows just how deeply depressed they really are. And for the clinically depressed, and there may be, you may be here today, that isn't a TV commercial at all. That's reality. That's reality. You know, as, a, as a, a big a bummer as this whole thing has been so far, I'm going to add to that. I mean, if I haven't dug a hole deep enough in this sanctuary yet, I'm grabbing another shovel. Did you know that there is another famous Bible character that actually became so depressed over his circumstances that he, too, asked God to just take his life? Yeah, there's another one. I get, and he's Old Testament, too. I guess the Old Testament was a real drag to hang out in because people are asking God, just kill me! Jonah was so caught up in his hatred for the people of Nineveh that he refused to obey the Lord when God wanted to forgive the people of Nineveh of their sin. He hated them. And he's told God, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Well, <laughs> we all know how that worked out. After running from God, hit the pause button right here. Depression or no depression, there's a word for people who run from God when God has spoken them His will. 
It comes from the old sitcom Sanford and Son. Now, you younger ones don't know who that is unless you watch MeTV or something like that. Fred Sanford would call his son Lamont on an ongoing cycle. You a big dummy. That's what he'd say. You're a big dummy. And for anyone who's depressed or not depressed, you run from God when he says, my word says you do X, Y, and Z, and you run. I have one sentence for you. It's been really nice knowing you. Bye. That's not a wise thing to do. Let me have a case in point here. After he ran from God, he was ejected from a boat in the middle of a storm at sea because nobody in that boat wanted anything to do with his rebellious, headstrong self. They threw his butt overboard because they heard these are sailors. And you know what sailors are like. They heard from God. I said, I ain't mind doing this. They take him and throw his butt overboard. That would be bad enough. In the part of the world where he was, that oceanic journey in the middle of a storm would have been a total and complete drag all by itself. But just, things just got started when those sailors baptized Jonah because he immediately gets ingested by a gigantic fish. He spends three days in that fish. And then he is promptly repurposed as fish vomit. Three days later. Only to have to experience the utter humiliation of still having to obey God's call anyway. I realize that there are people out there who could say this much more eloquently. But do yourselves a favor. Just obey God in the first place. At the end of that entire ordeal, Jonah found himself under a shade tree. A shade tree which, incidentally, God actually provided for him. <laughs> and under that shade tree, being preached to by the divine himself, Jonah realized the futility of his rage. However, before the Lord showed Jonah the error of his ways concerning Nineveh, in a fit of anger, Jonah says this, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then, <laughs> then Jonah has the nerve to turn around and say the same thing in, later in verse 8. He just said it in verse 3. Five verses later, he says it again. This time, not because of an ancestral enemy of Israel. Not for some kind of weighty, heady reason like that. Oh, no. He says it because of the death of his shade tree. You kill my tree. Kill me. You're in the killing business, so kill me too. I'm going to draw this to a conclusion. This has been really fun, huh? In both Moses's, Moses's and Jonah's cases, God wasn't moved by their momentary bouts of emotion. And depression. He wasn't moved by that. Why? 
because God said about himself, he says, look, if you want to move me, you're not going to move me like this. Why? Because I do not change. You can't manipulate God. It was well within God's purview to answer both Moses' and Jonah's prayers to take their lives. But as we know, he didn't. In both cases, God stayed his hand. Why? Well, like I said last week in part one of this series, the prophet Jeremiah said it this way, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. You see, here's the thing. Depression can rob you of a lot of things. But hope and your future are two of its top contending targets. It is. And the bottom line is is that in our two very famous examples today, God didn't kill them. Why? Because God wasn't done with them. He said of Himself, I have plans for you that exist already. I know what my plans are for you. I understand the circumstances that you find yourself in are anything but ideal. But the reality is, I have plans for you. And my plans include not harming you, but prospering you. My plans for you are not to dash your hopes against the rocks of life, but to give you hope, and in that hope, you will have a future. Although the book of Jonah comes to a rather almost unceremonious conclusion, we know that Moses had a lot that he still had to accomplish for the Lord. His life and his ministry simply were not over. Our text is taken from Numbers chapter 11. That's where we started today. Israel had only recently left Egypt at this point. They were only outside of Egypt days. They had not even arrived anywhere near Canaan yet. Once the spies had been set in and the unfortunate negative report had come back, Moses had the, albeit unenviable, task of leading Israel through 40 years of desert wandering. God wasn't done with Moses yet. And I understand that there are those here who suffer with depression, short or long term. I get that. But I'm going to give you some words of encouragement. As angry and as anxiety-stricken as the depressed can be, as upset, hopeless, and seemingly futureless a depressed person can become, as occasionally episodic as, as a person with depression can become, I want you to understand that God is not moved by depression to end your life. He has a plan for you. He is not done with you. And what you have to do, trust me, I know this, don't let go of what God has given you, as small and minute as that might appear to be, because God has given you a promise That promise is that He has a plan for you here and an eternity for you there. That's reality. And I know this one by heart. What would it have been like if God had granted Moses' episodic prayer for him to kill Moses? What would it have been like? You realize that several 
books of the Old Testament would have to have been rewritten. They wouldn't read the way they do now. Can you imagine what Israel would have thought what with God having killed their leader who was the face of their deliverance but killed him that early only a mere day, mere few days into their journey to the promise what would Israel have thought of God well he killed Moses But God didn't kill Moses. And God didn't kill Jonah. He had plans for them. Plans for, to prosper them and not to harm them. Plans to give them hope and a future. And He has plans for you. And because it's His Word, they are the same plans. Those are His plans for you. The 41st chapter of the book of Isaiah. And I'm finishing now. The 41st chapter of the book of Isaiah, verse 10, says this. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Last week, altar call was a drag. It was a bummer having to give that altar call. It was a great response. But the thing about things like depression, things like depression, there are other subjects, but depression is one of them. There's a stigma attached to this. I have been moved on by the Lord to come and do this series for you and disclose an awful lot about me that you didn't know before last week. But the reality is, stigma or not, God wants to touch your life. He wants to lift you up. He doesn't want to harm you. He wants to prosper you. Bottom line is that sometimes we only think prosperity deals with this. God is prospering me every day, and it has nothing to do with my wallet. Because sometimes prosperity and hope, the avoidance of harm and the future, look differently than what we think they're supposed to look like. There's a handful of people before last week that knew about what I was dealing with. Just a handful. And people, they would come up to me on occasions or they would text me if they live across the country. Or they would call me and they'd say, how are you doing? And the reality is this. I had to answer them honestly. And the honest answer to how are you doing is oftentimes I have good days and I have bad days. That's the truth. I'm taking it not one step at a time. For me, it's never one step at a time. Val? We talked. It's not about one step or one day at a time. Most of the time, it's one step at a time. Because that's my reality. But if you know too much to give up and your trust is in Him, one step is okay. One step is just fine. You know, it's a funny thing about these kinds of issues. Because people have a tendency to think and even say, well, why don't you just think differently? Why don't you just stop thinking that way? Let me ask you a question. 
Anybody here know of anybody who has cancer? Anybody here ever know anybody who either currently does or has had heart disease? What about some other potentially terminal critical illness? How many of you have ever lost someone to something like that? Let me ask you a question. Did you ever ask them, why don't you just stop thinking that you have cancer? Why don't you just stop acting like you have heart disease, Tony? Why don't you just stop that? God will take care of it. Just stop. No, you don't do that. Why? Because that's absurd. That's insanity. And when you're you're a person who deals with depression, you can't just think differently. Something has traumatized you. Do you remember what I said about these stressors can actually cause your brain to rewire? You don't just fix that. So because of that, I'm going to go back to what I said last week. Your cancer or your heart disease, that God transcends that. Whether you live with it or die with it, that doesn't alter who God is. God's still God if you die of cancer. The promises of God are still intact if you have heart disease and you stop breathing forever. He's still God. Well, guess what? Just because your brain is broke doesn't stop making Him God in your life. He is still God. And just because you're taking life one step at a time doesn't mean you're not moving forward in God. He's still God. Nothing changes Him. Nothing changes Him. And when you are suffering with depression, you need something that doesn't change. And that something is God. Almighty. Hallelujah. Stand with me this morning. We had a very extensive, wonderful altar call last week, but I'm gonna I'm gonna offer the altar to you again today. If you're an individual and something that was said today has just clicked for you, it has it has brought something home and you just want to come to the altar and either just thank Him or come because you have a need today. I'm opening the altars. Two, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, depressed or not, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm telling you right now, He is hot after you. Why? Because He loves you with a love that is eternal. It is eternal love. And if you don't know Him, He already knows you. But He is drawing you to Him. Drawing you so that He can embrace you. So that He can love you. So that He can bring you into His family and call you His own. That's why He came to save those that are lost and without God.